I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. Carpe diem. Seize the day. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. You must unlearn what you have learned. Do or do not. There is no try. Welcome to Sensible Mischief. I am your host, Lance Nelson, and this is Morgan Paul Aldis. Look at this beautiful bastard. <laughs> Look at this bearded fellow right here. I know who my father is. I'm not a bastard uh, in the conventional sense. <laughs> in my sense, he is. But we still love him anyway. Sorry, um, Dad. I love you. <laughs> I'm not here telling people that I'm illegitimate. My parents are very happily married for like... 30 some odd years. That's very good to hear. <laughs> I was a little worried from all the stories you were telling at work. Oh, oh just oh, no. <laughs> I hate my life. Oh, hey. Well, Morgan and I have known each other for about six months now. I remember that uh, I moved here for work and uh, Morgan just is a really good storyteller as well as just like he's a really good teacher. And I just uh, I remember the first time I met him, he was teaching a lesson in Sunday school and uh, I just was blown away by the way you were teaching. Like you made, like, I remember at one point when I was like trying to become a better teacher at things, like I was just like trying to expound so many things and sound so aloof and stuff. And uh, one bit of advice that someone gave me is they were like, you want to be able to teach the dumbest person in the room. And as the dumbest person in the room, I appreciated the way that you taught. But, like, you, you expounded on such cool things. Mm. And, like, uh, just, like, I mean, you, you got a gift for it. Thank you. So, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of editing. A lot of editing today. Uh, what, what brought you here to Eugene in the first place? Sorry, we're doing our podcast in Eugene at the moment. Um couple things so I first came to the Pacific Northwest uh, in 2010 uh-huh. um, uh, I was I did my two-year mission yeah, yeah. Um, just about two hours north of here in southern Washington and parts of northern Oregon really fell in love with it decided that uh, I wanted to come back to the Northwest at some point yeah I just like I know it sounds hippie and woo-woo but it's just like this place just calls to me yeah and um, Gosh, hippie. look at you with your flannel, <laughs> with shirts my flannel shirt. Should have worn your, my tie dye. Your baseball in the hat over here. Your trucker's hat. My trucker hat. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> look at it. You remind me of my husband, Harold. Shame on you, <laughs> Harold. Poor Harold. Uh, but uh, so then some good friends of mine in Utah, this married couple, um, the wife got into the law school here at U of O. Yeah. And so they moved up here. Uh, she had her first year of law school. And then, um, and like whenever I would talk to him, I'd be like, oh, I'm so jealous. You guys are so lucky. And like they would send me pictures of like the trees yeah. and the fog and the rain and just everything that I love about, about Oregon. Uh, and then uh, the summer of 2017, August of 2017 was the eclipse. Yeah. And uh, Salem, the capital of Oregon, it's just an hour north of here, was right in the totality. You can hear the baby Evie, crying. Evie's not happy <laughs> no, right she's now. Not. She was quiet all day. Until Until camera started rolling. <laughs> it's fine. There we love went. Evie. She's adorable. Uh, she's adorable. But uh, so anyway, it, it was the eclipse. And uh, this couple, uh, they invited me up to stay with them to see the eclipse. Yeah. 
And so um, a friend of mine and I had this job at, at the time uh, installing chairs in movie theaters. Yeah. And so the week before the eclipse, we had a job scheduled in, um, we were in Palm Springs, California. Yeah. And so we were like, okay, cool. Let's finish this job. We'll do like the great West Coast road trip. Yeah. Came up here uh, to Eugene, met up with our friends, went up to Salem, saw the eclipse. And we stayed with those friends for like a week. And at the end of the week, they said, hey, you know, we've we've got a bedroom. Yeah. If you want to move in with us, you should. Oh, that's awesome. Man. And yeah, and I, I thought about it and I thought that would be pretty cool. But there were some things back in Utah that I was working on that I felt really committed to. Yeah. And then uh, that all kind of fell through. So <laughs> about a month later, I, I moved up here and a week after I moved in with them, they found out that surprise, they were going to have a baby. So I was like, oh, okay, guess I'm gone. They're like, no, no, yeah, if, yeah. if you'll help us with the baby, you can stay. Oh, that's awesome. And so, yeah, so little baby and Atticus. I love that name. <laughs> well, okay. Okay, what Here's do you got? Here's a story. What do you got? So when I was in eighth grade, we read To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. And um, great book. I've read it, I think, maybe two times since I graduated high school. Yeah. It's really it, That book is wasted on middle schoolers. Uh, because it's a great book. If you haven't read it as an adult, you should. But um, I decided clear back in eighth grade when I first heard the name Atticus from that book, I was like, I'm going to name one of my kids Atticus. It's such a cool name. And like, it seems like everyone in my generation has the same idea. I want to name my kid a different character, racist white guy. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the name. That's that's the name of my child, racist white guy Nelson. Every character that is With their brother full and half. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> but uh, so I, I made that decision. I was like, I'm going to name my kid Atticus. Yeah. yeah. And then it, it, everybody in my generation kind of had the same idea. The yeah. name got kind of popular. Uh, but I, I was still determined to do it. And then um, so I was living with, with this couple and, you know, the pregnancy was going. And the, uh, the husband, Forrest... Uh, he Forrest Gump? No, <laughs> not quite. Sorry. But uh, he decided to read To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, yeah. And so he was reading it. And I remember just one night I was sitting there with them. We were watching Netflix or something. And like I looked at her pregnant belly and I looked at the book and I thought, oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh, no. It's happening. And I, <laughs> I looked at them and I said, you're not thinking of yep, and he's like, naming. And they were like, yeah, Atticus. We really like it from this yeah. book. And I was like, oh, yeah. you can't take that name. But they did. It's fine. It's not blood. So <laughs> you can name your kids that. That's true. I, uh, I had a friend in New Zealand that died in a car accident a couple of years ago. And we were really tight. But uh, he wanted to name his daughter Scout. So I'm trying to gonna have to pitch that to my future wife to be mm. like, hey, can we name middle name Scout? But... <laughs> It's a great book. It is. I love it. It's a really good book. But yeah. Well, sad day that Atticus has already been taken. I know. But we can have Atticus Part 2. <laughs> Atticus 2. <laughs> Better than the first one. But uh, let's see. Well, um, it's like with pancakes, you know. First one's a throwaway. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, <laughs> oh, well, that, will, that was just, we'll take a mulligan on this one. <laughs> That's right. What else you got? Give me other stories. Story. I've got loads of stories. I actually had a reputation uh, for having way too many stories. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to. Um, my, 
my seventh grade math teacher, Miss Mullins, yeah. was always getting after me for telling stories. Really? Because I had a story for everything. Didn't matter what she said, <laughs> I had a story for it. And looking back, it was probably a defense mechanism to not do math. I get you. Uh, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was true. I had a story for everything. And I remember one time she just absolutely lost it. Because she was like, she wanted to be a fun teacher and like yeah. a silly teacher. And so we're like seventh graders. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to be grownups, you know. We're like, yeah. we're teenagers. We're not in elementary school anymore. Uh, but she brought this like children's book okay. about a slug. And she read the book, and then she looked right at me. She's like, bet you don't have a story for that. But I did. Because one day when I was a kid, <laughs> I was playing in the irrigation ditch that ran back behind our house. Yeah. And I found this slug that was like this long. Uh-huh. And those are actually pretty common. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> those are pretty common like here in, in the Northwest. But in Utah, like we have no idea where it came from. Yeah, they yeah. don't live there. But I... Like, and I, I told her that, and she just, like, freaked out. She's like, you have a story for everything. And, uh, yeah, so. Good times. I'm known for my stories. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Makes me happy. One thing, it's always hard to do work with Morgan's around, because you're always like, I want to hear what you have to say <laughs> about different subjects. And I'm just kind of like, oh, what do you think about this? And then you'll just go off, and then I'm like, oh, crap, I should be working, I yeah. guess. I'm a bad coworker and a bad employee. It's terrible. One thing that I really liked is you talking about the hero's journey, mm. like is the first time when we met, um, he was uh, giving a lesson on that. Would you mind hitting a couple of points of said that? Yeah, yeah. So the hero's journey, um, it's also called the monomyth. And it was something that was, was kind of worked out in the 1940s by this guy, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell was a, a professor of mythology and comparative religion. And... What he did is he looked at myths from all over the world, like from the Australian Aborigines, the Polynesian Islands, um, Africa, ancient European myths and folk tales, uh, Greece, Rome, Native American stuff. And uh, he kind of broke it down uh, into, into some basic categories. And one of the major categories of myth that all of these cultures have is the hero myth. This it's, it's an archetypal story. And what he noticed is that if you kind of boil down all of these hero myths to their basic elements, they follow a very similar structure. And so in, in the 1940s, he wrote this book, hero with a thousand faces became very, very popular. It's still very popular. Um, where he kind of lays out his theory of, of the monomyth, the ultimate myth. If you boiled all myths down, you'd have this, this hero's journey. And uh, it really revolutionized things. Um, the basic elements are, you know, you have this ordinary person who gets called to do something extraordinary. And at first, he refuses the call. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Um, usually a mentor will show up and convince him that it's his destiny. I just keep trying to think of examples, but literally every movie I've ever thought of is just like, oh yeah, it's like, you know, it's like this. Actually, it's like that. Actually, it's like this. Actually, I'm beginning to see a pattern here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, it's um, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. um, 
lot of old bearded white dudes. Yeah, a lot yeah. of old bearded white dudes in the hero's journey, uh, playing mentor roles. And, yeah. and so the idea is that the the ordinary person is called to be a hero and to step in out of their ordinary world, the Shire, yeah. and into the extraordinary world. Yeah. Uh, uh, to to continue the Hobbit example, you know, to yeah. go out into Middle Earth yeah. and and ultimately to Mordor, go on an unexpected journey, as it were. Exactly. Maybe go there and back again. <laughs> exactly. Maybe have a War <laughs> of the Ring. I can't remember the last one, what it's called, but anyway. But uh, Battle of the Five Armies. Anyway, that's sorry, right. I'm done. Anyway, but uh, maybe some Samarillion. <laughs> okay. No. I'm... So so this the person will, will end up with a mentor and then they will end up with um, different supernatural help along the way. Okay. Um, a series of trials. And then there's this motif of death and resurrection. Okay. Of that in which the hero ultimately transforms and, and usually completes the great task that they're given. And then in doing so is endowed with some kind of power that when they re-enter the ordinary world, they are specially suited to help their community. And so that's kind of in a nutshell, that's the hero's journey. And uh, what one of the greatest examples, so, so Joseph Campbell said that his greatest student was, was George Lucas. Yeah. Uh, because... You know, we, we give all these other examples, you know, like Tolkien and, and um, you know, a lot of C.S. Lewis's stories follow this pattern. Just all of these heroes' journeys. It's kind of just, it's part of our understanding of what a hero is. It's to kind of, it's what the psychologist Carl Jung would say. They're archetypal. They just come down, they're part of being human already. Yeah. It's just like inherent and we inherit these, these, these categories yeah. from our ancestors and all of that. Uh, what made George Lucas different is he did it consciously. Yeah. He actually read Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah. And he actually thought, I'm going to write Star Wars consciously yeah. as a hero's journey. And so Joseph Campbell actually said George Lucas was his greatest student. Yeah. Um, which is good because that's what makes the original Star Wars trilogy so compelling. I mean, it's not the script writing. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah, it's, you know, the dialogue is, is famously awful. Yeah. Um, but. But I was going to go to the, I was going to go to Tasha Station to pick up some power converters. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, it, the thing These that made. not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> Move along. The thing that, that made Star Wars so compelling and made people go and see it 17 times yeah. and wait in line around the block. Um, a big reason why it's so compelling is because it so consciously latched on to these subconscious categories of yeah. the hero's journey that, that we find compelling. And the thing that I love is I think that everyone can literally put themselves in the, the hero aspect of it, mm -hmm. where it's like everyone is like, oh, I could be Luke, Frodo, whoever. It's just some mm -hmm. ordinary person. There's nothing some crazy about him at the beginning of the journey, but through the journey they learn valuable life lessons mm -hmm. and become a better person for it and then like everyone's like i want to go i remember when i was a kid i used to pray to get kidnapped or some that every day i was always like could i just go on some type of adventure mm. or something mm -hmm. please 
thank you for not letting me get kidnapped. <laughs> I do appreciate that, but yeah. See, I was kind of a nervous kid. Mm. I actually had like a kidnapping phobia. So while you were praying every night to be kidnapped, I was praying every night not to be kidnapped. You see, that's more logical. <laughs> I'm just kind of crazy. It, it wasn't logical. I mean, you can though. tell from my hair that I got like the Kramer hair that's always just like, well, hey, Gary and stuff. And you're just like, ah, uh, just anyway. Well, my hair was what I finally just gave up and <laughs> Fair enough. zipped I'm, it I'm, all. But. I'm coming up to you. Like my dad's bald, my dad's dad bald, and my mm-hmm. mom's dad had a nasty comb over. So I have no illusion that this is stained. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And like my my dad's going bald, my grandpa's bald. Yeah. And they always say that it's on the mother's side. I don't buy that. I don't buy it. Because my, my mom's dad died with But you got a, a great head. Partner. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's my <laughs> consolation prize. It's like, you're not going to have hair on your head. You're going to have hair literally everywhere else everywhere that you don't else. want. Uh, <laughs> but not on your head. But don't. It's going to be cool because I'll give you a nice shaped head. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be nice. That's kind of the deal that I ended up with. That's yeah, fine. I would say the deal we made, but I don't, I don't think I had any say in it. Yeah, but, that's uh, fine. You know. You pull it off nicely. Up. Thank you. I You're welcome. That. <laughs> oh, you were. Criminy. One thing Morgan told me ages ago about this one story about like how just Morgan literally doesn't care about what people think about him. <laughs> and I, yeah, anyway, yeah, if you could talk about that real okay. quick. Okay. Um, I, I will say that that's not entirely true. All right. Fair uh, I tend to like, I tend to. This is something funny about me psychologically. I tend to like pick a few people that I care way too much about what yeah, they yeah. think about me. And then I just don't care what anybody else thinks about me. It's a good way to be. And it, it can be. Uh, and I, it's, it's gotten better to the point where I, I don't necessarily like need to rely on a few people. Like yeah. I've, I've actually like really worked on not being that way anymore. Okay. Um, but yeah, for uh, part of it's just you know, I, part of some of my like inherent narcissism (laughs) that just causes me to look down on some people. And so, yeah, years after high school, um, you know, over the last decade or so, there's been a lot of talk about like bullying and stuff in the media, which just really confused me because I thought bullying was just like a movie trope. Yeah. Honestly, I mean, I was homeschooled, so I just mm -hmm. was like, Oh, like that's just what they do in TV shows and stuff. That doesn't really happen. Right. Exactly. But yeah, Cause like you know, I didn't I didn't see it. I never saw anyone get stuffed in their locker. Yeah. I never got stuffed in my locker. I never stuffed anybody in their locker. Yeah. Cause sometimes I tell people I'm like, yeah, I, I never saw any bullying. Yeah. And they're like, well, that's because you must have been the bully. Yeah. I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. If I was, I'm sorry. Uh, it wasn't conscious. Um, but I remember talking to my family about this, and I was like, I was like, yeah, like, what's all this talk about bullying? I thought that was fake. I thought that was just like a movie thing. And my dad just laughed. He was like. The thing is, is you were bullied, but you just had such a low opinion of the people who were doing it that you didn't even notice it. Yeah. And I I actually do remember uh, in my English class, there was this kid that was like trying to pick on me and he like threw a pencil at the back of my head and I just like was just like rolling my <laughs> eyes like what an idiot. Which, you know, I, a lot of people may have been, like, devastated or hurt. That, like, see, were... my, my stupid mind would just be like, oh, I'm sorry, you dropped your pencil. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and, like, me, like, I didn't even react. It just, like, yeah. bounced off of my head. I was just like, this kid. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> I think you and I were both born middle-aged men. I, oh, like, absolutely. We, just, we came out of the womb, basically, in cardigans and just being like, Doc, it's a little hot in here. <laughs> Could you turn up the AC and stuff? And they're like, holy crap, it talks. <laughs> 
I should. Uh, I'll send you a picture uh, that you can uh, yeah, insert, insert for the yeah. audience. Um, it it was my. It's like my baby picture. Okay. And I'm in this little white tuxedo. Right, and I look, like, I look like I look like you were telling me that your mom wanted you to be like a Gerber baby. Oh really yeah, yeah. Baby. My mom wanted to get me into baby modeling because yeah. she thought I was adorable. Which I'm I also gonna put my picture there because I was also adorable <laughs> because if I'm a crazy maniac. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I look like a, a little thirty year old yeah. in a tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I I totally and a, a lot of people like. You know, it's it's so funny because, like, all growing up, like, the old ladies at church and stuff would come up to me, like, after I was asked to give, like, a youth sermon or whatever. Yeah. And they'd just all be like, oh, you're so wise beyond your years. So, I'm like, so wise. I'm like, thanks, it's the trauma. But, it's uh, the trauma. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, that's, I, and uh, I think you're a kindred spirit in yeah. this. Uh, we both have, and, like, this is, that's something I've always thought is, like, I can't wait till I'm an old man. Yeah. Because without changing any personality characteristics at all, mm. um, right now I'm just like, like as a kid, I was like that freaky weird kid. Yeah. And then like at my age, it's like, oh, that kind of weird dude. Yeah. But without changing any personality traits at all, just by virtue of becoming an old man, it's like, wow, what an eccentric old man. Oh. And like people, I, I hope, maybe I'm just wishful thinking, but I think that that my personality will is is just not appreciated until it's in a, a ripened body me, that I, it I matches better. I, I always call everyone kid and stuff, mm-hmm. and they always get really mad at me. They're like, aren't you younger than me? And I'm just like, shut up, kid. Son, if you knew how old I was mentally. Ugh. It's like uh, like that movie. But the uh, problem is I'm not like a wise old man. I'm that crazy old yeah, man yeah, that's yeah. just always like, oh. Oh, for sure. Like, I want to be like... The crazy old alchemist on the hill, Fair the enough. like you know that like there's like neighborhood rumors amongst all the kids about yeah. like oh like he's a magician and the rumors I will start of <laughs> course but uh but yeah like I I just I can't wait to be an eccentric old man I'm like, I'm excited that movie uh, Secondhand Lions oh I strive to be like yeah. those two me and my brother we always talk about if like the worst should ever happen to our significant others we're moving in together. And- <laughs> That's basically going to be us. And becoming the second So from what I figure, they were trying to fly the plane (laughs) upside down through the barn. I need to watch that movie. It's a great movie. I love that movie. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's amazing. Um, Actually, do you want to talk about alchemy for a second? Oh, sure. Since I brought it up. Yeah. 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 Uh, So so what got you into alchemy in the first place? Yeah. So as a kid, um, I always wanted to be like a scientist and specifically like a chemist. Yeah. And I was always kind of attracted to like the mad scientist. Oh, believe me. When I when I was eight years old, I remember before I wanted to get into movies, um, I wanted to become a mad scientist because there was this old abandoned building in Fredericksburg, Virginia, that was right next to the lake. And I was like, this would be mm. my lair. <laughs> like, I'm so excited for this. And then obviously I failed at everything that is school. So I was like, all right, well, scientist is out. Done I guess I'll it. try and do filmmaking instead. <laughs> Make it go at that. Um, but as I got older, I realized that I was so like, but yeah, I, I wanted to be like a scientist or a chemist. Yeah. And like I was always mixing household chemicals together. It's a miracle that I am alive. Um, <laughs> as I got older, I got into uh, pyrotechnics. Okay. I finagled my way into an apprenticeship. 
Awesome. Uh, yeah, doing doing professional fireworks. There was one time, sorry, just about no, fireworks. There was this one time that uh, me and my brother, I just got back from my mission from New Zealand, and then I uh, we drove up to uh, Wyoming to pick up some fireworks, and then we came back, and we shot them all at each other in like this big sand pit, and uh, the cops came, and my brother tried to pull like a, my brother's a guy that like he doesn't want anyone to go down. So he's just like, oh, I shot all the fireworks. He's riddled with like holes in his shirt everywhere. And like he's basically doing a, I'm Spartacus. And we're all like, yeah, we shot him too. <laughs> and like I got a really cool cop that was just like, oh, like, do you guys have fun? I was like, yeah, it was awesome. I loved it. He was like, oh, that sounds cool. And then the other cop that he got, he was just, uh, he was like, um, just giving him a hard time and basically they handcuffed him and they were taking him to the car oh, and he was just like do you know how long a sarcastic guy like me will last in prison so long <laughs> but that's my brother he's hilarious <laughs> love you buddy i'm sorry continue uh fireworks so, yeah yeah apprenticeship. so i got into fireworks i got this apprenticeship uh just with the fire marshal yeah um and so uh, I started like he would invite me to go help set up the big Fourth of July show. Yeah, and eventually my dad and brother joined the crew as well, and so it kind of became like a little family thing. Yeah, um, and it was a lot of fun. And the fire marshal would let me, like, uh, man, he could have gotten in so much trouble. He would let me like keep duds and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I would take him home, take him apart. Um, you know, the it, the firework itself was a dud, but all the parts were good, so okay. I, I could take out the parts and reassemble them. I have and, so many dirty jokes for and, that right there, <laughs> oh, but we're going to move on. But, uh, and so I, like, one day I remember I was I was trying to make some Roman candles. Okay. And um, I lit one. It didn't go off. The fuse didn't work or whatever. And so I took it back into my parents' garage, which had kind of become my my workshop uh but what i didn't know was that the fuse was still lit it just had fizzled out for a second and so while my back was turned the fuse relit the roman candle went off and a bunch of my supplies went up and i mean there was like loud banks i had some shells in there that the fire marshal let me have that he really shouldn't have um because like a commercial shell that you can get in states that allow aerial fireworks um, for consumers would be like an inch. Yeah. These were two-inch shells, so it's twice as big okay, okay, <laughs> as, okay. as, uh, as you're going to get. Um, and I had a whole chain of those, and, like, they all went off. Yeah. Um, and I just I, – I, it scared the tar out of me. Like, I yeah. ran out of the garage screaming – my dad, who was like taking a nap or something, woke up to these explosion noises and hearing me screaming. Yeah. And so he runs outside and there's like smoke and sparks billowing out of the door of the garage. And I'm just sitting there on the grass just screaming. And he told me later, he's like, I, I was afraid to go outside. Like, I didn't know what I was going to see. I thought maybe you'd be like running around without an arm yeah. <laughs> or something. But I, I was totally safe. Yeah. Um, I was totally fine. And the garage by the grace of God, didn't light on fire. Like, there was no lasting damage except to my pride. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I was, I was really... So, I mean, f- that's significant damage there. <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I, was, I was really into fireworks and stuff. Yeah. 
uh, for many, many years. It's actually a, a hobby I'd like to get back into. That's the one, man. But uh, when I was a kid... Ever since I watched the Lord of the Rings, I'm like, I want to get into fireworks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep, that scene like really excited me as a kid. Yep. But yeah, when I was younger than that, it was like chemistry and, and science that I, I thought I was really into. But looking back at it now, I wasn't actually interested in chemistry and science. I was interested in the aesthetics of chemistry and science. Yeah. Just like having test tubes and, yeah. and all of that. Um, one thing, so like I mentioned, I hated math. Uh-huh. Absolutely hated it. Um, and my mom would always tell me, like, oh, you know, most of science is math trying to take my love of science yeah. to get me to do math, yeah, yeah. but instead it just made me hate science. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, but I still liked the aesthetic of science. There's yeah. just something about, you know, like test tubes and labs yeah. and all of that, that that interested me. And so over the last couple of years, I've, I've studied psychology and uh, I've been really interested in, in Carl Jung who I mentioned earlier yeah. because he influenced Joseph Campbell. Um, so Carl Jung was a really interesting guy. Uh, he was Freud's protege. He, okay, I watched a movie about them, and it had, oh, uh, really? it had Hugo Weaving and... Uh, no, sorry, not Hugo Weaving. Uh, Viggo Mortensen and um, Michael Fassbender and Keira Knightley. And it was really interesting. Really? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember what it's called. Dangerous something... Anyway, okay. I'll, I'll show it to you later. Yeah, I'll show you I want to. I want to see that. I didn't know there was a movie about yeah. it. But uh, but yeah, so he he was interested in psychology and everything. He he read a lot of Freud's work, was really intrigued by it, and he went to like a psychoanalytics conference at some okay. point, and finally met like his hero Sigmund Freud. Yeah. And like the legend has it that they talked for thirteen hours straight or something like that. And I've had a lot of great conversations. Never, yeah, never that time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you know, for for him, it was like meeting his hero because Freud was was older than Jung, and they kind of had this father son relationship uh, because Carl Jung's father just was not someone he ever respected. He never yeah. respected his own father, and so to have this like intellectual giant that he looked up to, they had a very like a very deep and intellectually intimate relationship for for a few years and freud really wanted jung to to take on the mantle of psychoanalytics and become his his protege uh but they eventually had a very nasty falling out yeah uh because jung was willing to take things like religious experience seriously he felt that they had a a serious psychological purpose yeah and all of that and freud just saw it all as as defense mechanisms and all of that and so jung's theories really went away from freud's work and they had a a really nasty falling out uh, which was unfortunate but uh but jung he he's just a really interesting guy because like you know, he he wanted to be seen as a scientist. He wanted his psychology to be seen as a science. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it was based on his own mystical experience. Uh, he basically drove himself mad for research. 
where he would kind of go into his own mind and he would meet these sub personalities and these characters that he would talk to. Uh, there was an, uh, a, a spirit guide kind of person that he called Philemon. Oh, lovely. That, that would guide him and teach him. And he, he wrote all of these experiences in these journals called the black books. Okay. And then eventually he went back through all the black books and kind of condensed everything into the red book. Okay. And the red book was actually under lock and key for many, many years. Uh, just a few years ago, it was finally published yeah. and it's full of his writings and paintings and drawings from this, this madness for research that he did. Uh, but he's a really, really interesting guy. And, and I think a lot of his work really, struck on on some things yeah. and so one of the things that he's most well known for is this this concept of the archetypes okay and so the archetypes are these pre-programmed modes of being uh so one of them is the hero like we talked about yeah. um he talks about the anima and the animus which are the feminine aspect in the male psyche okay and the masculine aspect in the female psyche um, just a lot of really interesting, strange ideas. And this idea that ancient mythologies were actual, actually psychodramas. They were these psychological concepts put into story so that they could be understood. Okay. And so, you know, like, like his, his psychotherapy approach would be like, you know, something like the hero's journey, which the, the way I described it earlier was, was kind of developed later by Joseph Campbell, but models like that became helpful in his psychotherapy Okay. because it's like, okay, like what a client would come in and, and he would figure out which archetype might be lacking in their life that they could embody yeah. to improve their life. And his, his psychotherapy became less and less about, you know, curing hysteria or, or, um, schizophrenia or whatever, and more and more about just like helping people reach their full psychological potential and becoming whole beings. Yeah. Uh, because he, during his, his m scientific madness, uh, he realized that we really are fractionated bits of personality. And so one of the, the terms that he coined was um, individuation, which is the, the idea of becoming a whole person by kind of taking all these fragments of yourself and aligning them into one. Okay. And it, it, just some really interesting ideas. Um, and along with mythology and these other things, he really got into um, like a cult phenomenon, uh, phenomena. He had a cousin that was uh, a medium and okay. was into the whole spiritualism thing. Yeah. She held seances and everything. And he was fascinated by that yeah. because he didn't believe she was faking. Uh -huh. He believed that she believed that what she was doing when she would like take on other personalities, uh -huh. he believed that it was real, maybe not in the sense that outside spirits were possessing her, but yeah. that parts of her were possessing her. And that that's what, what he was really seeing. Um, and so he was really willing to look at this weird stuff. I saw a great meme. Um, you know, the, the, the meme, it was popular a couple of years ago. You still see it where it's like this, this guy and his girlfriend walking down the street yeah, yeah. and there's another girl walking the other way and the guy's kind of yeah. turning and she's like, how dare you? Yeah. Um, 
And so this one that I saw, the girlfriend was labeled Freudian psychoanalysis. Okay. And the other girl was labeled magic. And then know. the guy was labeled Carl Jung. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, oh, magic. So he's just like, oh, <laughs> like, really? The Freud. just like, oh, <laughs> And Freud's like, really? no. <laughs> really? <laughs> exactly. And so one of his, um, one of, of Jung's friends was this other psychoanalyst named Herbert Silberer. And Silberer uh, came across this old alchemy text. The, the alchemists, um, especially in, the medie in medieval Europe and into the Renaissance, um, they wanted to keep what they were doing secret. And so they came up with this elaborate system of symbols to describe their chemical processes. And so you read an alchemical text and it reads like a really bizarre fairy tale. Yeah. It's like, you know, the, the king and queen slayed the lion and as the lion putrefied, it, it, its blood turned green and just like all these weird things where really like the king and queen represent like maybe silver and gold okay. and the lion represents phosphoric acid okay. and like the blood turning green is like a reaction that's happening. Okay. It's, it's really just elaborate and bizarre. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so what, uh, what silver, I'll tell you what, it makes it more interesting it than for the, for the, <laughs> when you read in the book, you're like, all right, okay, cool. Exactly. Instead of like, Oh, just pour this and this together. And then this happens. It's like, Oh, Thou shalt do this, and then the blood of thine enemy shall become as gold. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's that's what yeah. it's like. It's yeah. it's like this whole other language. Uh -huh. And so what Silberer did is he he saw it. He he read this text and was like, "This is really weird." Yeah. With his training as a psychoanalyst, he thought, "Oh, what if I treat this like a dream?" Yeah. And analyze it using psychoanalytic dream interpretation tools. Okay. And by doing so, he thought that there may be some psychological meaning to this. And Jung then took that idea and really ran with it. Yeah. And he, one thing that, that he found interesting, because he was really into dream analysis as well. Uh -huh. And he felt that a lot of these ancient myths um, are dream images that are common to all people. Yeah. And so... He, as he got into these alchemical texts, he started realizing that the the dream symbols that his his clients would tell him about were they matched these bizarre symbolic stories in these alchemical texts. Yeah. And he thought, well, that's interesting because I know my clients don't know anything about this. I barely know anything about this, but yeah. the symbols are the same. That's crazy. And so he kind of came to the this this theory that. Alchemy, while on the outside it looks like people trying to turn lead into gold, yeah. that it actually had a psychology to it. And so one of the ideas in psychology is, is the idea of projection. Yeah. And so it's, it's most common. This is an experiment you can do yourself. I actually, I've, I've been doing this recently, and it's really eye-opening. Next time somebody pisses you off. Okay, that in, should be really easy. <laughs> it, it, yeah, yeah, very easy. Next time somebody pisses you off, um, just try to stay conscious okay. instead of running with being pissed off. Okay. Just stop and think, what is that person doing 
that I don't like about myself. That's an interesting way to look at it. And what you'll, what, what has happened to me when I've realized that is like, like there, there's a guy, a guy at work that, you know, um, who uh, (laughs) was, it's not him, but he was really like bothering me and annoying me. Yeah. And I decided to do this experiment. Yeah. I was like, wait, am I projecting? What is it exactly about yeah. him that bothers me? And then I realized, oh, he has a lot of traits that I think I might have yeah. that I hate. Okay. And so what I'm doing is I'm projecting myself onto him yeah. so that I have a safe way to reject those traits yeah. without damaging my own ego. I get you. Is that's, that's one way to look at psychological projection. Yeah. And so what Jung figured... I do that a lot. Damn we, it. We all do. Yeah, crap. <laughs> we all do. Got a lot of work in the and, and that's part of individuation. Yeah. Is you stop projecting all these things onto everyone else out there. Yeah. And you bring them inside, accept them all, change what you can. Yeah. And then you become a healthy whole. And you can then start to relate to people as they are. Yeah. Instead of as you, what you project them onto them. That's crazy. Because man. the different, different people will have different traits that make them very easy to project different things onto yeah uh and so so that's kind of the idea of psychological projection and so what jung figured was that what the alchemists were actually doing was they were projecting psychological transformation within themselves onto chemical transformation in their experiments okay and that what alchemy really was rather than this project of turning lead into gold or whatever. There were actually a few different goals that the alchemists had. What it ultimately represented was this projection of this interior desire to transform into something higher. Okay. And that it was actually like a, a, a mystical practice. And so he, he kind of adopted that into his psychotherapy. And he, he looked at a ton of these of these alchemical texts and they all say pretty different things, but you can kind of generalize them into some basic categories. Most alchemical texts will talk about getting your materials together and subjecting them to great heat for like 40 days. And that will break down the material into their basic elements. They didn't understand elements back then, but they called it the prima materia, which is Latin for the, the prime material that's literally what it means the prime material okay. it's like the basic building block of matter mm. is is what you basically burn this stuff down into okay and then from there it, it can be worked with and a lot of alchemical texts use a, a color coding system so like okay so there's the black phase or the negredo which is yeah <laughs> it's latin uh, <laughs> well, three episodes in, we got canceled. <laughs> it was nice that while it lasted. Oh, geez. But uh, so this this phase of Negretto, or yeah, Negretto, was was the blackening was was right. taking your material, subjecting it to extreme heat for forty days to break it down to its basic substance. One thing that you said one time that was really cool that I didn't know is uh, what was it. Uh, Oh, crud. 
there was a court saying that you were like that's actually what it means like uh to to find like to metal melt it down all into what do you know what i'm talking about um you said it in a sunday school thing one time where you're like oh, oh it's like uh yeah because i was talking to a yeah. law student yeah. um yeah okay yeah yeah so so th things like trial trial that that was it that's an alchemical concept yeah because uh in alchemy to try the metals is to subject them to heat to purify them. Yeah, yeah. And so when you suspect someone is a criminal, you try them, you put them through the furnace yeah, yeah. of a trial of law uh, to see what's there yeah. and whether it's good or bad. I just remember and, being like, oh, that's great. I didn't know <laughs> yeah. that. And then, oh, yeah. A yeah. lot of our language yeah. actually comes from alchemy. It's crazy. Um, if you've ever heard the term hermetically sealed, yeah, that comes from alchemy. Okay. Uh, the great alchemist um, in the ancient world uh, the, was this legendary person named Hermes. Okay. And he was supposedly the one that invented the system for sealing uh, jars so that you could do alchemical experiments in them. For some reason, I was thinking that was the one with the shoes, but never mind. Anyway. Oh, Greek, yeah, Greek yeah. God. So, anyway, yeah, no, no. The, the Greek god Hermes okay. had oh. the shoes with the wings. All right. Mm -hmm. So I was right. Yep. Yes. Homeschool for the win. <laughs> Same guy. Same guy. Uh, kind of. It's it's kind of a blended mythology. Okay. Um, but yeah, so... So, so he, he... Sealing things. He yeah. He was the guy exactly. for Yeah, that. he was okay. the guy that figured out how to seal things. So yeah, yeah. So, so this guy Hermes that supposedly lived in Egypt a long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, he supposedly is was like the first great alchemist. And he okay. was the great master of astrology and alchemy and all these other things. Yeah. And so the texts that these... Um, people in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance were basing their alchemy on um, are these texts from the third century Egypt that are attributed to this this Hermes guy. Yeah. And in fact, um, so the reason you know that that you generally hear for the why the Renaissance happened was because these ancient Greek and Roman texts were finally being translated into the European languages. Okay. And that kind of caused this rebirth of interest in philosophy and the ancient world and all of these things. And uh, there was this very wealthy family in Italy, in Florence, the Borgias. And I can't remember his first name, but one of the Borgias was paying a lot of money to have like Plato and Aristotle translated into Italian. That's crazy. And then somebody found the these books by Hermes yeah. and he actually said forget Plato I want that translated yeah. and that's what kind of caused the reinterest in in alchemy in the in the in Renaissance Europe um, and it lasted a lot longer than you think yeah. um, a lot of people don't know this but uh, Isaac Newton was an alchemist really he was yeah he was reading these hermetic texts they yeah. call them um, he wrote out his own recipe for the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, but yeah, in the late 1700s, or in the early, whenever Isaac Newton was, yeah. maybe it was the early 1700s, but he was, I've heard it said that Isaac Newton was the last alchemist and the first chemist. Okay. He was kind of the one that was right there when it changed. Yeah. And, and what ultimately happened was it demythologized and became science. Okay. And that's how we went from alchemy to chemistry. Okay. But, uh, so anyway, so 
I was talking about the phases. So there's there's this phase of the blackening, and then next is called the albedo, the whitening. Okay. And the idea there is that once you have successfully broken down the material, then a new material emerges out of it that is bright and lustrous, and you're able to work with it. And then the next phase is called the citrinitas, the yellowing. And then ultimately, the, the philosopher's stone was said to be red. Okay. And so when the work was finished, it would turn red. That's the rubedo, the reddening. And so the, the, then there's lots of other different phases and lots of other things. Um, but you can more or less break down most alchemical systems into kind of this four-phase thing. Okay. And so what Carl Jung did is he figured out the psychological and the psychotherapeutic equivalent of each of those phases. And so the Negretto is what he called the long night of the soul. And it's when his clients would, his patients would, he, he called it the confession phase. Okay. And it's when they're actually like admitting these things that are going wrong and these thought processes that are going wrong. And it, it brings about what's sometimes called ego death is like realizing that so much of, of your life and so much and what is ultimately the root of your problem is that you're living in illusion and that hurts your pride. Yeah. But if you successfully endure that, then you'll gain a new clarity okay. at the end. And that's the white albedo. Yeah. <clears throat> and he, he called that. So there's confession and then elucidation, okay. which is, it just means clarity. Yeah. And so his clients would, once they came out of the, the negretto, out of the confession phase, they, they felt just this new freedom and this yeah. new clarity in their life. And then what he equivalated, equivocate, equivalated, is that a word? Equivalated? What he, the equivalence he made. There we go. There we go. I was like, the same thing as... <laughs> The equivalence he made in psychotherapy was this phase of education where the, th the therapist would kind of help the client to put new meaning to things, to yeah. kind of understand the truth, all of that. And then that would spontaneously bring about psychological transformation, which is the fifth uh, or the fourth and final. That's the rubedo, the reddening. Yeah. And so what I've done is... Um, I've, I've tried to adopt those four phases into my life and I've yeah. used it to solve my problems and it's been very helpful. It's Dude, really cool. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Like just over the last year and a half, I very consciously tried to put myself through those four phases Yeah, and it's been really good. I've done a lot of writing Yeah, um, just where I decide to be brave and just like confess what's not working and as you do that, you start to realize like, oh, like, and, and just to see through illusion. Yeah. What I found very helpful is um, in doing that is uh, this book by David Burns. Okay. Uh, he's a, yeah. a psychiatrist. Um, so we wrote this book back in like the 70s or 80s called Feeling Good. Okay. And it's, uh, it's about this school of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah. which is based on the idea that that depression and anxiety come from maladaptive thought patterns. Yeah. 
And in the book, he lists 12, he calls them cognitive distortions, okay. which are common patterns of thought that are, are not helpful. And so like one of them is black and white thinking where you can only see things this way or this way. And you have yeah. a hard time seeing things in the, in the middle. Yeah. Or there's one of my huge distortions is mind reading. Okay. And it's where you just assume that someone else is thinking badly about you. Yeah, I get Which that. we all do that. I yeah. get that, yeah. Um, and, and so things like that. And so what I've done is I've, I've kind of created this, these writing programs for myself yeah. where I really explored. I, I dedicated a week to each of these cognitive distortions. Yeah. And um, like I'd write it on a sticky note and stick it on my computer at work. Yeah. So every day I was just looking at that distortion. So yeah, I could yeah. like look for it in my life. And I made these writing exercises for me to do every morning um, that really like brought it into my awareness of when I was doing these things. Yeah. And so I would do that five days a week. I would do these writing exercises for this specific distortion um, every morning when I woke up. And that kind of primed me to be ready to see them throughout yeah. the the day and then at the end of the day before I went to bed and I had a rule that I had to do this before I could go to sleep yeah. and sometimes I'd like hit resistance and I just like sit there for like an hour like I've got to do it so I can go to bed but yeah. I don't want to do it because this is hard because it's yeah it's negretto it's confession it's, yeah. it's hard to admit that you are living out a distortion instead of reality yeah um negretto yeah yeah negretto, so negretto negretto I didn't get in trouble for that did I <laughs> Yet until this comes yeah, out. Until this comes out. Um, but so at the Negretto, end of the please. Jeez. <laughs> oh, so at the end of the day, um, there's this three column exercise that's also in in Dr. Burns's book. Yeah. Where you write down the thought that's making you anxious or depressed. Okay. Which takes a little bit of like figuring out and honesty, and then you identify which of the 12 distortions is behind that thought. Yeah. It's usually more than one. And then in the last column, what's important is you challenge it with the truth. Yeah. And so, for example, uh, at the job I was working when I was doing this, one morning I walked in and my boss was at my desk on my computer, okay. which was very unusual. He never did that. Yeah. Um, and I like had a little anxiety attack. I was like, what's he doing on my computer? Yeah. And like, I immediately thought that I was in trouble yeah. and, <laughs> and all of these things. And then he got up and went back to his desk and I never did find out what he was doing. Yeah. But, like I was thinking, I was like, I'm in trouble. Like there's something on there that's going to get me in trouble. Like what, what's going on? And so that night, Actually, on my lunch break, I did it because I happened to have my workbook that I made with me at lunch. Um, but I wrote, like, I recognized that I had had, like, this moment of anxiety. And so I wrote down all the thoughts that I was having, like, oh, I'm in trouble. There's something on the computer that's gone wrong, yeah. uh, yada, yada, yada. And then the distortion behind that is a couple things. One, it's mind reading. I'm assuming what my boss is thinking. Yeah. Uh, two is... There's a distortion called personalization, which is where I assume that the reason he's on my computer has something to do with me, yeah. which it doesn't necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And apparently it didn't because he never talked to me. Um, uh, fortune telling is another cognitive distortion that you just assume you know what's going on yeah. and what's going to happen, even though you don't. Yeah. Um, so those, those were some of the distortions that I wrote in that column. 
and then the final column, I just wrote the truth. I, and so I wrote, you know, the truth of the matter is that's his computer. He yeah. owns the company. He has any number of reasons to be on there because yeah. it's connected to the network and everything else. And he never talked to me. So this must not have anything to do with me. Yeah. And even if it did have something to do with me, I know I'm innocent because I've never looked at anything other than work stuff on this computer. Yeah. Um, and I immediately felt better. And that just kind of resolved that. Yeah. And so I would do that every weekday. Yeah. And then on Saturday, I would just reflect back on the week and just kind of write any insights that came to me, which was usually quite a few as I was doing this. Yeah. And then on Sunday, I would, I just had a page with the, with two sentences. One was this week I learned. And the second sentence was if anything I wrote this week is true, it might be helpful if I, mm -hmm. and I would just rapidly write as many endings to each of those sentences. Don't even as think I could. about it. Don't just even write think about it. it. Yeah. yeah. And, and the daily writing exercises are in that same format. And yeah. that's a, a little trick I picked up. It's always crazy when you do that, where you just write whatever you're thinking mm -hmm. instead of like actually think about it type of thing, because mm -hmm. yeah, uh, I've had a couple of moments of realization for things mm -hmm. for me where I'm like, da 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 da. -da. Oh, okay. Like I remember there was this one time I was, uh, I was in this classroom and someone was like, Hey, what's, uh, what's something you think positive about yourself? You're like, Oh, I think I'm funny. And it's like, now what's the true thing about it? I know I'm not. And it's just like, <laughs> Oh, apparently I think of that like deeply subconsciously. Uh -huh. Okay, cool. All right. Need to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's an exercise that I picked up from this psychologist, Nathaniel Brandon. Okay. Really interesting guy. What, what got you interested in all this stuff in the first place, by the way? Uh, like, I mean, cause, cause <laughs> I mean, we kind of hopscotch all over the place, but I, yeah. I, mean, I love it. But like, I mean, so we, we were talking about, um, alchemy through, uh, you said, uh, David something, the guy that wrote the oh David Burns David Burns and stuff mm -hmm. and so like what what made you want to get into like reading all this stuff in the first place I mean you seem like a very naturally inquisitive person I am very naturally inquisitive yeah. um, I'm naturally obsessive fair <laughs> enough so I, I go through these phases yeah um, but what really did it for me with this kind of stuff with mm -hmm. psychology and its related fields um, you know, there's kind of a joke that people in college major in psychology because they're trying to figure out what's wrong with themselves Fair enough, yeah. subconsciously. Uh, for me, it's, you know, I, I'm a college dropout. I'm, I haven't done any of this formally, but um, rather than a rather than majoring in psychology because I'm subconsciously trying to fix myself, yeah. what happened was I consciously independently studied psychology yeah. because I constantly or consciously wanted to yeah, fix yeah. myself. That's really what it comes down to is I'm trying That's to figure myself out. That's the one. And, uh, and it's kind of become a, a little bit of an obsession. I would say it's a healthy obsession. I've had a lot of unhealthy obsessions in my yeah. life. I know the difference. Um, this one, I've kept it productive. Yeah. And so it's been healthy. Well, the cool thing is you're, you're writing a course and mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this is, it sounds like a great program that you've been developing mm -hmm. and people can actually sign up for the this program and there's a series of videos that all send in the link when it, the link when it does come out and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, and so that's one of the things that I realized as I did this program for myself yeah. just with these these sentence um, completion exercises um, which I was saying I picked up from the psychologist Nathaniel Brandon yeah. who was a really interesting guy um, when he was like 19, he started a 20 year affair with Ayn Rand. Uh, 
Okay. The yeah, woman yeah. who wrote Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, really weird. Like, he was married. She was married. Yeah, yeah. They had this open affair. Like, they both told their spouses. He's like, yeah, like, I'm sleeping with Ayn Rand, who was old enough to be his mother. You know, paging Dr. Freud. It's a whole Oedipus but, complex there, <laughs> yeah, but it's fine. You know exactly. what? It's fine. But, uh, but yeah, um, as wacky as Nathaniel Brandon was, I have found this sentence completion exercise that he developed to be very helpful because yeah. um, it helps, it, it gives the subconscious a chance to speak without your conscious defense mechanisms stopping it. Yeah. And so it's very revelatory. And I put that in, in uh, Carl Jung's category of confession. Uh-huh. So I'm doing these weekly exercises about when I'm using these cognitive distortions instead of sitting in reality, boom, that's my confession. And then every night I'm going through very specific things, times in my life during the day where I am not living in reality. I am using these distortions, which distortions they are, and then challenging them with reality. That's elucidation. That's the second phase of, of this alchemical, of this psychological alchemy. Yeah. And then on Saturday, I write down every insight I had. So that's the third phase, education. And then on Sunday, that all important, if anything I learned this week is, I wrote this week is true, it might be helpful if I, and that transmutes it into action, which is ultimately where change happens. And so that's the final, the reddening, the rubedo, the, the transformation. And it worked. Like I, I, I found it to be very transformative. Um, I did it kind of scientifically. Uh, Dr. Burns, who wrote that book, Feeling Good, yeah, developed. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> but he developed this this um, quiz, I guess yeah. you could call it. That's it's used by by psychotherapists to this day. Yeah, it's in the book. Um, but it's like 15 questions, and you you rate how much it applies, and then at the end it gives you like a depression score. Yeah. And so when I started this experiment. I had like a moderate depression score. I think I was, I think it was like 11. And then by the end. 11 out of what? Like 35 or 40. Okay, cool. But it's, the the answer key says it's like moderate depression or something. And by the end of it, I was at, I had had a few consecutive weeks of zero. Dude, that's awesome. And yeah, it was really cool. And like, I noticed that I just felt like I was living in reality, like for the first time in my life. Like I had untangled all of these false thoughts and and i truly felt transformed yeah um and so i i kind of did this psychological alchemy on myself and i thought maybe it was a fluke so i gave it to some friends and it worked for them and i put together like a little beta test group that i ran for a little while um the the pandemic hit and i kind of uh that 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 beta group kind of fizzled, unfortunately. Yeah. But while it, while it was there, I was getting a lot of good feedback. Yeah, yeah. And so I've had several people tell me like, you know, the world needs this. Yeah. And honestly, like you said at the beginning, um, you know, one thing that I love and one of the things that you saw that I love is teaching. Yeah. And so that's kind of my current project is I'm getting ready to convert this into an online course um, I'm going to be making some, some videos, uh, through f- freelance productions. 
<laughs> and so, yeah, that's that's going to be my little contribution to the world is is changing this thing that changed my life and has changed the life of these other people I know into something that will hopefully change a lot of lives and and will spring me into a career doing you know this kind of teaching and coaching and and everything like that you know everybody thinks they're a life coach right now but yeah. i think i actually do have something unique yeah to, dude it genuinely it <laughs> to, really is it, share, it's a so. really cool perspective on it and like from everything you say i, I definitely feel like it's going to be able to help a lot of people well this has been Morgan Paul Aldous, thank you very much for being on the show. You bet. And always get into some sensible mischief. Thanks for watching. Bye.